Have you heard? Metro by T-Mobile now includes Amazon Prime. Yes, enjoy the best of shopping and entertainment, movies, TV shows, music, free shipping, and much more. All included for just $40 per line for three lines. All on the T-Mobile network. Discover the smarter way. Metro by T-Mobile. That's genius. One offer per account. Offer subject to change. $12.99 per month value. Offer valid for new Amazon Prime members. Metro customers may notice reduced speeds versus some T-Mobile customers. Video at 480p. Capable device required. See store for details and terms and conditions. Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. This is your host, Kian Sobani. This is a special podcast. We're doing it in two parts. So part one, Jonathan Johnson of ESPN FC joining me to preview the second leg against PSG on Tuesday. Obviously, you know Jonathan. He is the correspondent for ESPN, residing in Paris, covering PSG, PSG fan himself. He helped us preview the first leg, and um, he's going to help us preview the second leg. We'll talk about some of the things from the first leg which I thought were interesting to touch back on and revisit. Uh, We'll talk about PSG's state heading into this game and so forth. Part two of this podcast, make sure to stick around um, because it's our regular Sunday show where I won't be joining Om and Gabe, but those two will do a tremendous job, I'm sure, of recapping the Katafe game and uh, taking your patron questions there. So without further ado, here is part one of the Manager Madrid podcast. Hello and welcome to the Managing Madrid podcast. This is part one of tonight's show. It's Sunday night. We've officially gone past all of our final hurdles before our match against PSG. Um, so now we officially look forward to that second leg on Tuesday, even though we've been flirting with it for a few weeks now. Um, joining me to help preview this do-or-die match in Paris is ESPN FC's PSG correspondent, Jonathan Johnson. Jonathan, welcome back to the show. How are you doing? Hey there, I'm doing very well. Thanks, and you? I'm doing good. We're two days away now. How do you feel? You feel optimistic? You feel pessimistic? You've, you're kind of you're you're trying not to think about it too much. What's your mindset? Um, you know, I'm looking forward to it. Really, I think it's for for PSG. It's a, uh, a massive moment in the season. You know, pretty much decisive win, and the season continues. PSG are fighting for glory on all fronts and lose, and you know, the season is. Uh, is effectively over. Yeah, they're fighting for domestic glory, but you know this is all domestic glory that PSG have already experienced in the last couple of seasons. Uh, last uh, season in the Champions League was massive disappointments at the hands of Barcelona, uh, and to exit this early in the competition again uh, against Real Madrid this time would, you know, it it, it wouldn't soften the blow. Uh, you know, and in fact it would make uh, it would make things worse. So I think that there's sort of excitement mixed with a bit of. Um, with, with a little bit of tension going into this one. Um, I, remind me, uh, when we did the podcast before the first leg, remind me of your prediction. Was it? I think it was a draw in the Bernabeu and an overall win for PSG, right? Yeah, I said, yeah. I'm pretty sure I said uh, one all, something one like all. that. one all, and then PSG advances in the second leg. Yeah, um, exactly, which yeah. was all going to plan until the 80th minute of the Bernabeu. <laughs> <laughs> um, to be honest, it was... I was there, and it was terrifying because 
up until, you know, like Real Madrid clicked into a gear and went to another level after Zidane subs. And I, at the same time, it felt like Emery was was kind of making a couple of brain farts tactically and, and with the substitutions. And before that point, before Real Madrid took over and scored a couple goals, um, it really felt like PSG could have won this by two goals. It also, in a weird way, it felt like Real Madrid could have won like 4-1 instead of 3-1. It, it could have gone either way. And I think that's that's the kind of back-and-forth nature the game the game had. And there was definitely times where Neymar would just get the ball and dribble. And you, you could kind of hear this like collective like groan in the stadium because like, he was actually just... With the ball, he would, he would get through a press. Um, there were definitely times where he was dispossessed and Real Madrid countered, but he was just... He was so good with the ball. And... You know, I, I think if it if Real Madrid didn't go into that gear or 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 PSG, like you know, if they didn't play their high li- high line, it would have ended a lot differently. Yeah, I have to agree with that. You know, there's a lot of ifs and buts, but at the end of the day, what yeah. happened happened. Uh, PSG went on to lose three one, and yeah, um, like you pointed out, certainly for me from a PSG point of view, I felt that uh, the game was won and lost with the substitutions, the substitutions that the Zidane made, and the substitutions that Unai Emery didn't make. Uh, you know, I feel that he uh, should really have reacted to Zidane's substitutions in the same way that Zidane reacted to Emery's initial substitutions. I mean, I, I found taking Cavani off and bringing Munier on. I mean, okay, okay, I can see some of the logic that, that Emery was trying to implement there, uh, but ultimately it didn't work. It didn't. I mean, and certainly now with the more information that we know and, and uh, has come out in the last couple of days, Kylian Mbappe was playing on an injured ankle, uh, has been doing so since uh, PSG won away at Toulouse. It, 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 you know, the mind boggles really as to why Cavani was brought off uh, and Mbappe wasn't the player to be brought off, especially when you bear in mind that Angel Di Maria didn't get a single second uh, on the pitch uh, that night, which, you know, I find is crazy. And that's something that will probably, uh, you know, be remedied going into the second leg, but it's being remedied at the at the cost of uh, Neymar. And obviously, I'm, you know, I'm talking about that potential injury to uh, to Mbappe, you know, and if it's true, then he really has been playing through a, through a sprained ankle for the last couple of weeks. Then, uh, you know, Unai Emery's mismanagement wasn't only limited to the Real Madrid game. You've got to look at the way um, they played against Marseille uh, a week or so ago in uh, in Ligue 1 and then in the, the Coupe de France because they had um, a quick-fire doubleheader against Marseille. And you, you, you can't help but looking at that moment when Neymar got injured in the Ligue 1 fixture against Marseille and, and feel that, uh, you know, Emery's mismanagement not only cost PSG in Madrid against Real, but has, you know, potentially cost, cost them ahead of this second leg as well. Because when you could have brought Neymar off, you brought Mbappe off instead. Uh, and, you know, Neymar is now injured, has undergone surgery, may well not play for PSG again before the end of the season. You know, the, these are... Uh, the ramifications of some of these decisions uh, that's, that, that are quite illogical at times from Emery, uh, you know, have um, have cost. And this is, uh, you know, this is, this is something that Emery really needs to avoid happening again uh, at home against Real. Otherwise, you know, PSG's Champions League hopes are over for the season, obviously. But Emery's hopes of keeping the PS job or, uh, PSG job are over as well. You mentioned the Cavani and Munier sub. I Emery said a lot of interesting things after the game and, and a lot of it was focused on the referee because, I don't know, to me, when I was reading those post-game comments, um, I felt like it was a man who was 
worried about his job, focusing on the referee so much. But but aside from that, one of the things that stood out for me, he he took an answer. He took a question from a journalist who, who asked about that sub, and he said that the Munier sub is actually helped them dominate the right flank. Did you see it that way? I see what he uh, was getting at. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think for the couple of minutes that Munier was on the pitch, um, that you know PSG did look strong on the right. Uh, Zidane obviously recognized that and he countered with that, with the changes that he made. The one thing that I think Emery underestimated, uh, and it's something that you can only really um, gauge as the match is going on, is how good... Danny Alves was at right back yeah. uh, combating Marcelo coming forward until he made that change and pushed Alves forward because once you push Alves forward, if you've got the ball and you're attacking all the time, uh, okay, you're going to be pushing uh, Marcelo back. But if Real gets some of the ball and start making uh, you know, some attacking moves of their own, all of a sudden it's going to be Marcelo up against Munier. Munier has been thrown into the, you know, into the match, hasn't been up against Marcelo for the whole game as as Alves had and obviously you know Alves being Brazilian and Marcelo being Brazilian the two players know each other there were a couple of moments in the match where I felt like Alves uh, you know was was almost uh, second guessing uh, Marcelo and some of the stuff that he was doing and he was able to do that because he knows the player so well uh, and I, I think that element of the, the the change from Emery you know really I, I just didn't understand it whatsoever and I think that when you when you look at the way that PSG were playing up until that that point when he made the the Munier Cavani sub, PSG were crying out for just that little bit more in attack, the you know that little bit more that somebody like uh, Angel Di Maria would have added yeah. uh, in order to you know to perhaps kill the game because if PSG had gotten that second goal. Uh, you know, I don't, I don't think that Real would have even drawn in that match. I think PSG would have won two uh, one. It's like you said earlier on. Uh, there, there was a scenario where PSG could quite easily have drawn or maybe even won the match, but there was also equally a, a scenario where Real could have won by one more goal than they actually did. It was, uh, you know, the margins were that fine at, at times during the game. So I think, I think I, I agree with you. Where I can see where Emery was going with that comment, I there was definitely a period before Real Madrid scored those two goals where. PSG were were holding onto the ball a lot in the right flank, and Dan, you mentioned Danny Alves. He had the most touches of anyone on the pitch. He was highly influential for bringing the ball to the back. He was good defensively. I think what kind of clouds our judgment based on that comment was the fact that both of Real Madrid's goals came from that flank, and I think it had more to do with Danny Alves getting repositioned and stuff. But it during that moment where Munier came on and they had a lot of possession on the right right wing it's it's as if like they just couldn't capitalize during that good spell and I think that's what hurt them because Real Madrid at that time also were tired they weren't pressing as well Isco was just a, a just a dead corpse he he had run himself into the ground up until like after an hour mark he was he was tired um and PSG didn't seem clinical and I think taking Cavani off really hurts there but I think what the fact that both goals came from that side is what I think everyone questioned why Emery said said what he said. Um, I wanted to also ask you about Lo Celso, who who started this game in that anchor role, and before the game, you had you had advocated for him to not play there, but also to have Di Maria in there as a midfielder, which we haven't seen Emery do much this season, if at all. Correct me if I'm wrong, um, but. 
do you think Los Celso was also another reason? Like he gave the ball away a couple times in that deep position. Um, like talk us through that. Do you think we'll see that experiment, or is that experiment just done at this point? Uh, I think that's done. Uh, yeah. em- Emery will be going for uh, as experienced a starting eleven as he can get on Tuesday. Uh, I, you know, we're not going to see Lo Celso playing defensive midfield. If we do, I'd be absolutely stunned. But I think we're more likely to see Lasan Diara or Thiago Motta. Now, both of those players are more up to speed. Uh, it's it's as I feared really with uh, with Los Celso when we were speaking before the first leg. Uh, you know, it it was always going to be more about how the player reacted to the occasion uh, as opposed to uh, you know his, his actual ability to play the role. He's not a natural um, defensive midfielder. He's more of an attacking uh, player. He's more of a creator. He's done very, very well to fill in at that role. I don't think it's going to be a long-term fit. I hope it's not going to be, because if it is, he's going to be wasted there. Um, but, it, you know, it didn't surprise me to see the occasion getting to him. Uh, and I feel, I feel like it's uh, it, it was a soft penalty decision against him. But at the same time, it's a logical one. It's one that could be understood because at the end of the day, he was doing something that he shouldn't he shouldn't do. And with more experience, uh, being able to handle uh, that sort of match better emotionally, uh, it's something that, that you're not going to do as a player. But this is the risk that Emery took putting him in, knowing that he, it was going to be his uh, full Champions League debut. And, uh, you know, PSG uh, paid the price. Uh, and I think the biggest mistake that Emery made, more so than actually starting Lo Celso in that match, uh, was not bringing him off uh, until much later in the game. Uh, you know, if I was Emery, I, w- I would have brought him off at uh, half time or, you know, perhaps even an hour into the match maximum. But, I, you know, as I recall, it wasn't until sort of the final five minutes that Lo Celso was finally brought off. And that for me was. Uh, one of a number of mismanagements uh, from from Emery. I feel I feel sorry for Los Celso, and I hope that it won't taint um, the 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 progress that he's made this season in the in the fans' eyes. But obviously, he was uh, you know one of a number of scapegoats on the night. And as you said, uh, the goals, uh, the Real goals late on in the match did come from the left hand side. Uh, well, the Real left and the yeah. PSG right. Um, but you know you also have to look at some of the players who were involved in that move. So you've got Meunier, uh, Marquinhos. I felt although he had a very very good game uh, for the most part, uh, was was pretty poor for the for the final ten minutes and was involved in both goals. Alphonse Ariola in goal as well also had a great game up until those final ten minutes. Uh, you know was at fault, well partly at fault for, for for one of those goals and perhaps you know could have done better. Uh, on two of them, but you know, at the end of the day, the those are the risks that 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 Emery took. One of them being uh, to drop Thiago Silva and put Presnel Kimpembe in instead. Kimpembe did very well, uh, but the armband fell to Marquinhos, and in those final ten minutes, you know, the pressure was really on Marquinhos's shoulders, and I I, I think it showed. So yeah, going back to the original question about Lo Celso, I feel that. Uh, you know, it was something that that Emery should have really thought more about uh, before the match, uh, and you know should have known that that was uh, that that was a possibility that the the sense of the occasion would get to him. Uh, he didn't, uh, and he, you know he mm. at the end of the day, a couple of the players really suffered because of the the, the pressure that they were under in that match. So Lo Celso being one, and Marquinhos being uh, being another obvious one. Yeah, I mean, like Lo Celso. You mentioned that he's had a good season. He, I think it was the next game. I think it was against Strasbourg. Uh, it may have been also against Marseille instead. But 
he had a really beautiful assist uh, where he was playing from the right and he just he kind of dinks this ball in uh, in a diagonal ball and I was like wow that's that's why you want him in a more advanced position and, and like you I kind of just feel bad for him like kind of just with this positional juggling that Emery's done and the other thing I wanted to point out was you thought that the Draxler experiment may have been done did he came on for a midf- in in the midfield so why was it him that came on and not Di Maria because as a Maridista, I'm like, thank God it was Draxler, not Di Maria, because I just didn't want to, especially before the game, Di Maria was saying he would be fine with playing with Barca. He has no emotional attachment with Real Madrid. I was like, I just don't want to face this guy. I think he's fired up against us. Do you, is there any reason behind the scenes that you know of, that you can think of, why Di Maria just didn't play this game? I, I think at the end of the day, it was just Emery making tactical sense in his own mind uh but obviously there was there there was no logic to it for for most of the other people looking uh you know looking on you know people people like me basically it it it, 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 it's it's strange i mean i i understand wanting to keep somebody like draxler happy because when psg made the moves for neymar for mbappe uh last summer the the player who was being linked heaviest um with a move away from psg wasn't actually Di maria draxler uh and i think in order to sort of appease him and and show that there was some sort of future for him to fight for at psg they had to find a place uh, where they could play him um and you know and give him meaningful game time uh and that place was in central midfield um and you know that 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 basically came at the expense of Di Maria because Di Maria was a, essentially a, a substitute for exclusively for the first part of the season once uh, Mbappe and Neymar uh, were both fit and, and ready to go and could play up front with uh, with Cavani and I, I find it strange that Di Maria has never been given a chance in central midfield because like we said before the first leg it's you know a position that he's played he played really well very very influential in that role um, in the lead up to, 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 to Real's Champions League success in his final season uh, and for him to have not been given um, a, a, a chance to play there at all under Emery is really strange especially when PSG have had need in that area could just be that Emery prefers him as a as, as an attacking uh, wide man uh, and and you know and that and that's fine but I think it's uh, yeah it's it's very strange when you know you've got a player of um, Di Maria's ability as motivated as he is um, you know to not to not give him a chance in uh, in, in a game like that and uh, you know we've seen before that Draxler can play that role against certain sides but gets exposed against the really top teams uh, you know Bayern away in the group stage being a good example of that uh, and you know he Emery persists with these with these decisions because they make sense in his own mind. Um, how's Mbappe's health now? I, I think he'll be f- he'll be fit enough to to start the okay. game on Tuesday. Well, he'll be he'll be past fit. You know how what what sort of state his his ankle is in. Uh, you know we'll we'll have to wait and see. But I think it's bit it's a bit disappointing this close to such an important game that you find out that a player has been playing through the pain barrier yeah. for the last couple of weeks. And when you go back to the first leg and look at how PSG could have lined up, uh, you know if if people had known that. Uh, Mbappe was carrying an injury. I think that they would have been clamour for uh, Di Maria to start, um, you know, um, on one side of Cavani with Neymar on the other, and I think PSG could have done some damage that way. Yeah. Mbappe didn't play poorly uh, at, at the Bernabeu, 
But at the same time, you know, he didn't set the world alight either. I mean, there weren't too many PSG players who really did that. Um, but, you know, f- f- for me, it was... Uh, I, 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 just, I just thought that PSG would approach that match uh, a, bit, a bit more logically. Um, and if Mbappe wasn't 100% fit, then with somebody like Di Maria in the form that he's in, uh, you know, I think it would have been a no-brainer to start him. And I, I, I just can't get over Di Maria's lack of involvement in that uh, in that first leg. And then I find it baffling as well that Mbappe was played uh, in the, the the games afterwards, the two games against uh, against Marseille. I mean, okay, he missed it. He missed the match immediately after Real um, against Strasbourg, but not because. He was not fit enough for that. He was suspended for it anyway. So it's I, I find the handling of uh, of, of Di Maria's um, ankle in the build-up to, uh, to to this match a bit uh, a bit baffling. And uh, to be honest, if 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 that was the reason why he was withdrawn against Marseille uh, ten minutes or so before Neymar got injured, then you know I'm not saying that. Uh, you know, it's, it's anything to do with Neymar, and that you know he deserved uh, what he got. But you know, Emery was asking for trouble making uh, making that change because Neymar had been ill in the build-up to that, and probably would have benefited more from being brought off when when Mbappe was brought off in that match. So this Mbappe injury stuff, playing through it and stuff, is did we not know this before? This is like just coming out now after the fact. Is no, that... this 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 is this has come out today. We're wow. recording this podcast on a Sunday, hmm. and uh, you know that that little bit of information only dropped in the, on you know this this morning essentially. So it's yeah, hmm. it's a big surprise, uh, and once again, just goes to show that you know PSG have a long long way to go before they can really consider themselves on a on the you know the same level as a, as a Real Madrid. Because I think with you know Real, you wouldn't see Zidane, uh, you know, sort of taking these sorts of risks in a in a match in a build up to to a big game like this. And if one of his key players is not 100% fit, as may well be the case on uh, Tuesday, because you've got a couple of players who are of uh, you know questionable uh, physical status at this moment in time. You know, the likes of Modric, Cruz, uh, Marcelo as well. You know, I don't think that, that Zidane would hesitate to. I've replaced them with somebody else if he feels that they're not going to be uh, able to give every, everything on the on the pitch. And with Emery, whether that's his decision or the decision of some certain higher ups at, at PSG, uh, you know, it's not the it, it, it's not the case there. And it's yeah, it's 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 concerning. You and you sort of wonder what the real state of some of the other players is going to be going into uh, into this game on Tuesday. Well, for for what it's worth, I, I agree with you that. Uh, Mbappe wasn't otherworldly, but he was good. And I, I think he had a couple chances with Keylor Navas saved. And I think there were moments where Real Madrid, when they were switched on with their press and PSG were trying to figure out where to go, Mbappe's dribbling was the one thing that really unlocked our uh, our, def- our defensive line. So, you know, for what it's worth, I think he was good. And if, if he's healthy, like I, this whole thing that... It it kind of worries me a little bit that everybody is is kind everyone kind of thinks that this game is done and dusted because Neymar is not there. Um, I think we saw PSG put four against Barca with neither Neymar or Cavani last season at home. Parc de Prince no, is no, a Ka- very Ka- Kava- Kavani sorry play. Mbappe Mbappe and Neymar are the two I meant. Um, Cavani was there, and Parc de Prince is a tough place to play. And, you know, 
I I think that if Di Maria plays, that's an, that's an extra something. I so, do you think? What do you think changes? Um, do do PSG kind of change anything without Neymar, or is it just basically the same style, but you kind of just slide Di Maria in there? I mean, P- PSG don't really move away from the the four three three. Certainly since Emery arrived, and then uh, had it made clear to him that the players only really want to play in the four three three formation. Uh, that's the that that's the system they've been using since then. So, yeah, it's a question of uh, Neymar coming out, Di Maria coming in, uh, and then, and then I think we'll see a substitute, well, a substitution, a change uh, in uh, in defensive midfield. Like I said, I'm pretty sure we'll see uh, either Diara or um, Mota starting instead of uh, Lo Celso. So they're the two main changes that'll probably be made. The other interesting one that could um, that, that could be made is what happens in central defence, because obviously Silva was dropped for the first leg. Um, Kim Pembe came in, did a good job. Uh, Marquinhos was fit then and played well for the most part of that match. But Marquinhos now is, uh, you know, has been racing against time to be fit for this match. Uh, so you know what. What, what does Emery do there? What's his central defensive partnership going to be like? Is he going to trust Kim Pembe again? Uh, or is he going to go for Silva and Marquinhos this time around? And I think it's a risk if he puts Marquinhos in, um, considering how, how many PSG players have been playing through injury right now. So for me, I think the smartest move from Emery uh, in central defence going into this game would be to play Silva and uh, and Kimpembe. But the you know the big question is, does he trust Silva enough to, to start him in this game? Because I think that it, it would be a mistake for Emery to play the same central defensive pairing that he played uh, against Real in the first leg when you consider uh, Marquinhos' physical state at this moment in time. And then I guess the only other area of debate in that starting eleven is at left-back. For me, I thought Bacicci was the right uh, choice yeah. for the first leg because he's more balanced. Uh, but I feel that Kazar is the right choice for the second because he's more attack-minded. Kazar mm. uh, was not having a great season, uh, but he tends to play best in the Champions League. And at this moment in time, PSG have to score goals. If they don't score goals in this game, they're not going through. Uh, and Kazar is more of a goal threat than Bacicci, so that's why I put him in. If, if Emery is going to make a decision uh, to play somebody because he wants to be responsible defensively, then I think he's asking to lose this game because at the end of the day, PSG just need to go out there uh, and stick as many goals past Real as possible and not worry about how many goals they might concede because, uh, you know, they could concede no goals on the night but still go out because they don't score enough. Who was it uh, that Kurzawa scored a crazy goal against before the first leg? I can't remember. It was a screamer. Le- Leon. It was Leon, yeah. That's, yeah, that was the game they lost, but he scored an unbelievable goal. Um, I mean, he's scored some good goals this season. I mean, cast mm. your mind back to the group stage where you know he managed to get a hat trick against Anderlecht, but mm. uh, it doesn't change the fact that he's uh, you know a poor defender. Defender, really. Yeah. He's he, he's he's more of a winger. It's almost like you know it's kind of like you know what United have done with Ashley Young, where you've taken a winger and made them uh, made them a fullback or a wingback. Uh, that's essentially what what. You know, has happened to Kazara in his uh, in his career. He's you know he's not as balanced. He's not as capable um, of of playing uh, defensively as somebody like uh, Rafael Guerrero at uh, Borussia Dortmund, for example. Somebody who also played left back while he was in Ligue 1, uh, but is very capable going forward as well. So then we'll see a four three three. So we see Cavani, Di Maria, Mbappe, and then Verratti probably last. Will we see Rabiot? He starts. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. And then either Kurzawa or Bertic, Alves, obviously, Arawala, obviously, and then maybe Thiago Silva and Marquinhos. That's about right, correct? Yeah, that yeah. that seems to be the, the general gist of it at the moment. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about the pressure of Emery. You've... I think we we all know that his job security is it's very thin ice if he especially if he loses this game. Do you think that because Neymar isn't playing the pressure comes off him just a little? Like does the does the board look at that and say, "Oh, well you didn't have your best player." Or is it doesn't matter at all? No, they they expect they don't expect to go out in the Champions League this early. Okay. Uh, and I don't think that they'll um you know, bring Neymar's absence into consideration when deciding whether or not to give him a new contract if PSG haven't gotten to the semifinals and, you know, he's mm. earned that Osmatic 12-month contract extension. Mm. Well, I, I think that's the correct way of looking at it because it's it's beyond Neymar decisions that have dug himself a hole here. <laughs> um, I mean, and like, like you mentioned earlier as well, uh, you know, the PSG board will also rightly point out that Emery led a PSG side without Mbappe, without Neymar, yeah. uh, to a 4-0 win over, over Barcelona. Yeah. A um, couple of patron questions and then we'll let you go, Jonathan. So patreon.com slash managing Madrid is where you can go to pledge if you like the shows and get different rewards. Uh, including guaranteed answers to your questions. So, Jose Villacreses, one of our patrons, says, will there be another Goku Tifo in the Parc des Princes? Because that was awesome. It was. Um, but I don't think uh, there will be a repeat of the Tifo. I'd be very surprised if uh, PSG's Ultras did uh, the same or something very similar. I think they'll go for, for something completely different for this match. Uh, interestingly... Uh, PSG's ultras aren't only going to be at one end of the stadium for this game. Normally, they're at the Otoy end of the stadium. Uh, on Tuesday against Real, there are going to be ultras in the Otoy end as usual, but also at the Boulogne end of the the stadium. So, uh, you know, with the with the volume, uh, you know, absolute maximum, it's going to make Real the Real fans and the Real players sort of feel like they're surrounded. You're going to have this real like wall of noise and color. Um, surrounding the players and going all the way around uh, the Parc des Princes. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how that one works out because normally what you have is you have the one end of the stadium, the Otoyen, making a lot of noise and then the Boulogne-en, you know, very, very sort of quiet and everybody in the stadium when they're not watching what's going on on the pitch, just seeing what the the ultras are doing uh, in the Otoyen end of the stadium. But for this one, it's going to be at both ends. And, you know, I'm sure that the, the ultras have worked out um, some, you know, very interesting uh, TFOs that they they want to unveil on Tuesday. Well, you mentioned the ticket prices are really high, and this is, I mean, it's a, just a cool initiative that they're that the ultras are doing just by spreading themselves out in the stadium. The message it it's supposed to send and the atmosphere it'll create. Does the higher ticket prices, um, does that mean potentially less ultras, less noise? Just because no, no, it no. seems I th- like I, th- an, I, th- I, th- yeah. I think at the end of the day. At the end, the end of the day, the ultras are guaranteed of their their, their seat in the stadium. I just think that uh, because of the way that um, you know the seating is done, the season tickets and the the pricing and everything, um, some of the ultras who are, who don't are not necessarily guaranteed their their seat for every game, uh, you know, will will perhaps have found it more difficult to take their usual seats in Ortoy. So that may well have contributed to them uh, being at the at the other end of the stadium. But the 
you know, this is also something that the ultras maybe approached PSG about uh, in advance of the of of this second leg, and especially once they knew the result of the first leg, wanted to make uh, you know uh, the the support behind the team as 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 fierce as possible, and know that it is it's quite a one-sided atmosphere usually um, when you're playing in Parc des Princes and all of the ultras are at the auto end of the stadium because you have a lot of noise coming from that end so it's great for the players to play in front of that end obviously uh, but then nothing really at the other end so it's quite, it's kind of giving the players uh, a double incentive one for each each half of the match knowing that they're going to be playing towards uh, you know uh, fans who are going crazy making a lot of noise and you know there being a lot of colour so no I don't think it means that there's going to be less ultras less uh, less noise there's going to be as many ultras they're just going to be in different areas uh, so there's you know there's going to be a lot of noise and a lot of colour I can guarantee that um, I've that's David Garrido uh, one of our guests on our, our last week's podcast he was saying the atmosphere at Practice Prince is something really special so I've added it to my bucket list so I, I'm a bit jealous that I'm assuming you'll be there or, and covering the game. So um, I'm sure it'll be fun for you and, and also semi nerve wracking as well. Yeah, absolutely. Looking forward to it. And, uh, you know, there's nothing really like uh, these big matches at, uh, at Parc des Princes. Yeah, you get some good atmospheres domestically like uh, Marseille last, last week, but nothing compares to a big European night at Parc des Princes. And, you know, this is shaping up to be really special. The, the 4-0 win over Barcelona is one of my, my fondest memories, uh, not only as a journalist, you know, but also as, as somebody who um, has, has spent a large portion of their lifetime. As a as a PSG fan or follower, uh, you know, and, and to be there on, on such a historic night for such a historic result was great. So obviously, I'm hoping for for similar uh, against Real on Tuesday. Um, I mean, the Bernabeu is similar in the sense that you can kind of the the atmosphere is okay in La Liga games, but then on these European nights, it's something just like goes to another level. And um, I mean, like we'll we'll drag out some games and it'll be kind of boring. But these these games, those the atmosphere is completely different. Um, one, I think that though yeah. that 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 also reflects uh, the expectations of the of the fans as well. Uh, you know, we're talking at the end of the day about two two clubs uh, who I mean, okay, you know, they 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 have different statures within the European games because you can't really compare uh, PSG who haven't won the Champions League yet uh, to a uh, to, to a to a club like Real, who have you know uh, you know are now into double digits for Champions League successes. So, uh, but there is an expectation there of um, of you know of, of winning silverware uh, at PSG as there is uh, at Real. So I think when you have you know sort of like these these humdrum domestic games, uh, you know it, it's harder for the for the fans to sort of get themselves up for it. Uh, I think a big part of that as well is probably down to like um, kickoff times, which is something that PSG will be uh, experiencing very soon. Like for Real, for example, if you, if you have to play the, you know, one of the earliest uh, fixture times, I think there's sort of one close to midday on a Sunday. Is it in Spain? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, something like that. Yeah. And there's there's one of those coming up soon in Ligue for PSG where they're going to be playing away at Nice uh, at one o'clock in the afternoon in order to target the Asian market. So yeah, those those sorts of games, you know, yeah, you're not going to see the same sort of passion that you do in a, in, in a Champions League match for sure. Yeah, no, I mean, if you look at like 95% of the games on Camp Nou, it's, it's a snooze fest. There's like, 
there's a few tourists in the stands and there's there's just not that much excitement and like you really have to have a big name big game at the camp note to like make it special um some stadiums just naturally can do it better you know um one question this is this will be the last one this will kind of take us into real madrid the real madrid scope and Essa Hariri says the inevitable question what is our formation against psg so I'm sure you've seen Jonathan's the biggest question marks leading up to this game um, were Marcelo, Kroos, and Modric. And Marcelo played on the weekend, so we know he's good. Modric and Kroos, we weren't sure of, and now we know that they they were in training um, today. So whether that means they're 100% fit and ready to go, I don't know. I imagine that if they're if they're fine, they'll play because Real Madrid will need them and. From my experience, Jonathan, when Real Madrid go into a, an away stadium, into a very hostile atmosphere, and if the team is unnerved at all, Modric is the one guy who like just has ice in his veins and just calms everybody down, and he's composed. He gets the team out of this tricky situation. So I hope he's fit. I hope he yeah, can but, go. But I mean, in, interestingly, though, on that point, I mean, is he really going to have ice in his veins with what's going on in his private life at the moment, with everything like you know he the trouble that he's in back home in Croatia? That's a good question. I mean, I have no idea how he feels. I, the whole That whole thing is, is so shocking to me because it just doesn't fit his character, you know? Like, And it, I have no idea like if a lot of those decisions he's being accused of, is it, is it down to him? I'm, I'm surprised he, he's kind of even siding with the Croatian Federation at all and then with the, the, the other issues. I, I don't know. It's a good question. I, I don't know how much it affects him. I don't know. One would hope it doesn't, you know? Yeah, but we'll see. And, e- and, e- and equally, one would hope it does. <laughs> <laughs> yes, from your perspective, of course. Um, I guess the, the question is, if one of them or both of them can't go, the obvious replacement is Mateo Kovacic, who has played well in their absence. He was rested against... Uh, who did we play yesterday? Oh, my God. Katafe. And... One would imagine that he, because he played four games in a row, he was rested yesterday. Zidane will, will start him in Paris um, just in case one of those two can't go. Um, and that's fine. Kovacic is a really good midfielder, so I'm not too bothered by that. But I think not having Modric or Cruz is still a huge blow for us. Um, any final predictions? Does your prediction still stand? Have you changed your stance at all? Uh. No, I'm going to be optimistic. I'm going to say that PSG ultimately go through because I don't think that winning 2-0 at home against this Real side is is beyond PSG. And if it proves to be on to be beyond PSG, uh, you know, then I think there's serious questions really have to be asked uh, between now and the end of the season, and then certainly in the summer. Because uh, I'm not saying that this was a very easy tie for PSG to navigate, but I think the this this PSG side, even though there is uh, a lack of balance in certain positions, uh, was was good enough to overcome Real this season. And if they don't, uh, you know, I I I think that Emery deserves not getting a new contract. And I think that some of the players who will then be um, shipped out come the the summer, you know, also deserve uh, you know to to no longer have their their place within the squad because I think that this this squad is capable of going um, to the to the semi-finals. Uh, and I think it would be a real shame if they, uh, you know, they throw it away this early and don't get past Real. Um, I'm not expecting it to be an easy game, but I don't think it's beyond PSG to win uh, by two goals to nil. 
So I I will make that my prediction. The PSG win 2-0 uh, and ultimately go through. Oof. Um, I hope you're terribly wrong about this prediction. <laughs> I won't lie. Um, I think... I don't think it's beyond PSG to do that. I also don't think it's beyond Real Madrid to score one away goal. And I mean, that, that goes without saying. They're obviously highly capable of scoring away goals. But I also, if that does happen, which is to me is likely, I also don't think it's inconceivable that PSG score three to make up for it. You know, the, that kind of firepower is well within them. So like, even if they concede an away goal, I don't think it's beyond it to score three and... And in that situation, we know we go into nail biting, extra time, and stuff. And well, that's that's why I said yeah. two 0 because I know I know very well that it's a, it's a possibility that it could end sort of three one, maybe even more. Uh, and yeah, I as as excited as I am about this game, I'm not sure I'm excited about the that the idea of possible extra time and, no, uh, and penalties. So I'm not going to think too far yeah. that you know that that far ahead. Uh, but I. You know, I think that at the end of the day, we will see PSG score goals. And I agree with you. I don't think it's beyond Real to, to, to score at Pug Pass, especially if PSG are going to be in, um, you know, hyper attack mode, essentially. Uh, but we will uh, we, we will see what happens on Tuesday. But I'm, I'm confident and I'm going to stick with it that, you know, PSG will ultimately go through. Well, I think the other biggest question for Mark for us, which I, we didn't really get to, is beyond the midfield is who starts between Isco and Bale. Because... If Real Madrid are to be more efficient on the counterattack, I think Bale is the guy to go to. But if Zidane sees sees it like he did the first leg, he might say, well, let's just control this game with Isco and then bring on Bale in the second half when for sure the game will be a bit more open. And I, I'm not sure I agree with that, but if Zidane decides to bench Bale, I think it'll be that'll be the rationale behind it. So that is another interesting question that... Sometimes we think we know the answer to what Zidane's going to do and he, he just always surprises us. And and so it's it's hard to kind of predict what's in his head. Um, at any rate, well, I hope you have a blast at the game. I hope you don't have too much fun, but I hope you have fun. And um, I, I appreciate you you doing this and uh, let's stay in touch and, and good luck on Tuesday. Thank you, Jonathan. Thanks, man. Uh, been a pleasure, and uh, yeah, hopefully uh, speak to you soon. Hello and welcome. It's your Weekend Managing Madrid podcast. Um, we're doing this show in two parts. So this part of the show is just me and my man, Om Arvind. How's it going, Om? I'm doing good. So we will be discussing the um, Real Madrid's victory uh, 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 over the weekend and, you know, sort of just kind of taking your questions on the La Liga match. Um, yeah, I mean, this is, uh, so it was 3-1 to one over Hitafe. It was, you know, pretty good, pretty good match generally. Um, and then Keon will be going into doing a preview with Jonathan Johnson of ESPN FC, uh, uh, who covers PSG from Paris. So uh, if you haven't heard the first you know, interview he did with Jonathan. It's a, it's a really good show, so go back and check it out. Real Madrid obviously playing PSG in kind of a season-defining match on Tuesday, so obviously stick around. Keon is not with us, though, Ohm, so it's just me and you. We get to, like, you know, shoot the shit a little bit because um, our uh, uh, taskmaster, Keon, is not, <laughs> is not here uh, uh, to, <laughs> to tell us to keep on track and whatnot. So, yeah, so... Um, Obviously, this is your host, Gabe Lezra. Um, 
We are, yeah, so we're talking about Real Madrid 3-1 to one, um, over Hitafe in the Bernabeu. I think the big story, I mean, before the match going in was how Keon's, you know, beautiful adult son, Marcos Llorente, uh, started in, I and what was the, I think the, arguably the most interesting aspect of this lineup um, um, was that Marcos Llorente starts in what is otherwise basically a full-strength Real Madrid side. So he's next to Isco and Casemiro in midfield. Uh, with Bale with the BBC up front, I mean that was I I was pretty impressed that uh, that Zidane kind of rolled out this lineup, but also had Marcos Llorente, who really hadn't had much time, much run with the squad generally, uh, in the match in such an important you know role in a full strength Real Madrid. So I so I was I personally so there's like three things for me. One, I was actually happy with how Marcos Llorente performed. I know there are a lot of people that were a bit iffy about that. I, I was happy with how he performed, but I think it was marred by two things. One, I don't think the Llorente-Casemiro double pivot partnership is necessarily the most optimal partnership with the qualities that they have. And two, I wasn't happy with the way the midfield was structured, and I thought that affected the the yeah. impact Llorente could have on the game. So, so the first point is obviously that First of all, we, we, we already know that Casemiro is not necessarily the best distributor. And even if he's better than we say, it's clear that that's not his role in the side. So, And and then you have Llorente, who we're not exactly sure about how great of a passer he is yet. Because with Alaves, you know, he, he would pass sideways a lot. He was very good long at passing long balls. But Alaves's offensive structure wasn't the greatest. They were very defensive team so it was hard to see how good he was in possession and with Real Madrid we, we don't have the largest sample size but I think in my opinion I don't think Llorente is the greatest vertical passer I think he's he, he's he's generally a safer passer he's more about simply you know recycling possessions circulating the ball quickly from side to side rather than making these penetrative passes that break down deep blocks to, so to have someone like Casemiro and Llorente together it doesn't necessarily give you the most penetrative midfield partnership. And then you have the structure, right? So a structure could make up for that. So if you have if you have Isco moving into the right areas, it, it makes it easy on, on the mm-hmm. two to make passes. But as as we've seen this season, the midfield was all over the place. I mean, Isco was way, way too deep. Llorente, if you look at his heat map, which shows the touches he had in game, it looked like he was playing as a right back. Casemiro was in positions where Isco should be way high up the pitch. Yeah. I mean, it was all over the place. And so for the first 30 minutes, it seemed like nothing was happening. But then BBC, they, they took over the game. I mean, Bale started coming a bit deeper. Benzema started linking play. And they essentially started taking over. And Ramos, who had the most passes on the team, I think he had like 120 passes, which is crazy. It was more than anyone else. He started taking over. He started right. stepping up to midfield and playing vertical passes into BBC. And once that happened, it all became all right because the BBC were on fire that game. And once Ramos started feeding them with passes, hit the didn't stand a chance. Yeah, and I mean, obviously the story of the match really is how well Bale, Benzema, and Cristiano all played. I mean, obviously Benzema didn't get his goal, but he, he was classic Benzema match in that he was everywhere and playing in this uh, really, really strong um you know, forward midfield link-up role that he's so perfected as Real Madrid's kind of uh, second striker. Uh, and he, yeah, he freaking ruled. And, like, obviously the first goal came when Bale uh, uh, got a rebound from a off of a, a set piece. 
and just smashed it in the bottom left. And as soon as Madrid got that goal, there was this kind mm-hmm. of uh, really like noticeable change in, in, in the way the entire team played to the point where like the, you can really just mark this game as before the goal and then after. Because before the goal, there was a lot of like aimlessness. Isco was especially, I mean, I don't think that really it fixed the positional issues, but it did fix the kind of attitude issues. So Isco mm-hmm. was everywhere. The game looked a little gormless. It was like, looked a little bit like it maybe going towards another one of those zero zero with that late loss type matches, except then suddenly yeah. score and then everyone, you know, plays a lot, a lot better. And, and I, I remember seeing someone, I don't remember who or whoever was running our Twitter account, I think said, it's it was annoying. Me. It was you. Oh, okay. Well, then, why don't yeah, you just okay. talk about what you were talking, what what you what you meant when you said that it's a little annoying that Madrid uh, needs needs a goal to really get get themselves up and into a match. Yeah, because it's so. I think it's good, right? That like goals lift us and we use that motivation. But we we should already come into that match, you know, motivated. And, and wanting to win the game and, and having that little bit of extra energy that gets us over the hump. But what annoyed me is the fact that it's it's necessary, right? Because goals are always going to lift the team. But it's that our tactics aren't necessarily the best. That when we go into a game, it, it, it's hard for us to, to adjust to essentially a shapeless midfield. And then it takes essentially a, a goal, which was kind of lucky through the rebound. And then it took a goal for us to be able to get to such such a level right like where where our mental our mental state was was high enough that we could overcome these kind of what what i describe as poor tactics or a lack of tactics in midfield and i don't think that should be necessary right like i think that kind of motivation you find from that sort of goal out of nowhere is good and i think it, it it definitely plays a role but i don't think it should be necessary every time to have to enter a match you know be dull for 30 minutes because we we're not sure about what we're doing we're not sure about our tactics and then to need that to then go on to win the game i mean it's not something you can rely on right because to get a goal generally you have to be competent in, in in your tactical plan everyone has to be um in in sync with one another and then to get that goal kind of out of nowhere to then go on yeah. and it's seen this season and it's something that's hurt us because we haven't got that goal out of nowhere a lot of the times yeah yeah exactly but we didn't i mean they didn't this match bail at knocking that ball in he is now the second highest scorer on the team um, behind obviously Cristiano Ronaldo, who continues to be on fire um, with two goals uh, and at least one other goal rolled out for mm-hmm. a kind of tic tac foul, and then there were a couple other you know calls that could have been not called, like offside goals. Anyways, it was it was a very strong match from Cristiano Ronaldo, especially in that second half of the game, right? Like he finds his first goal at uh, in the very end of the first half. Madrid come out with a lot of power in the second half, get that red card very quickly, and then uh, kind of go from there and dominate the match. I mean, it's it's not a, like there's not a lot of talking points in this match other than I think you're totally right about first of all the the midfield. I mean, it just looks gormless and positionless and like amoeba like when you look and you try to layer mm-hmm. on these. You know, even if you look at the kind of average positioning maps, uh, you it's very hard to ascertain exactly what the hell like these people were thinking and where where the tactics were. And on some of it, it makes me think that there probably weren't tons of tactics. Uh, and a second thing that I wanted to mention is that that 
you said that uh, you're the Llorente Casemiro partnership doesn't really work, and I I do agree with that. I would say that one of the reasons it doesn't work is because for whatever reason Casemiro seems to think that being in a double pivot means that he can suddenly become an offensive player, and so <laughs> he just rushes forward. And there were just many times where he would be on the end of some of these passing combinations, and the, it would just end the attack. And it was infuriating. It was like, why are you receiving the ball there? Shouldn't that be someone who is, you know, not you? <laughs> like, get back and play in the passing lanes and, and redistribute the ball. And, like, obviously, Llorente, I thought, was quite good when Casemiro would do that. But, like, it was annoying that Casemiro keeps thinking that, that <laughs> this double pivot allows him the freedom to rush up field like that. Yeah, I don't think I don't think they should play together again. I mean, it's just that they're they're – their duties are too similar. I wouldn't say Llorente and Casemiro are the same players, but the roles they want to perform right. are very similar. And I think Casemiro saw that he was he was trying because they were each trying to get out of each other's way because they they didn't know what to do when the other had the ball because they wanted to do what the other was going to do when they had the ball. And and that's what made that's why Llorente would move all the way out like wide to a right back position. It's like they they didn't know what to do off the ball, and that's a problem, right? Yeah, like it yeah, just. Yeah. It, it just they shouldn't play together again because if if and I, I'm not even sure I like Llorente in a double pivot. I think he's a very classic single pivot defensive midfielder. Like I I because a double pivot does give some leeway for a player to kind of move up like a box to box, but like that's just not Llorente's style. Like he he he's very much a middle 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 third of the pitch player who distributes and recirculates the ball and, and defends very intelligently. And it's just not something that suits him. And I thought given the circumstances, he did well. And I think that's a positive we yeah. should take from that midfield of, of that day. I also wanted to take another positive. I thought another straw game from Teo, um, obviously. Yeah, he, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, has been gotten a lot of criticism. I still don't think it's deserved. I think he's beginning, we're beginning to see why, uh, everyone else is beginning to see why we, as a show, and me in particular, was were so high on him. He looked really good. Yeah, he was. He was. I mean, he's looked good for uh, a a a couple weeks now, and it's because he's finally he's finally starting to understand his place within the team in in the context of everyone else. He's understanding when to make his runs, when he should dribble the ball. You know, simple stuff like that, but stuff that is crucial a crucial development phase for everyone of his age. I mean, he's still 19, I think. Yeah. Or he, he's, yeah, he's really, 19, really so. young. One of the youngest players so, on the team. I mean, you have to have that kind of patience with, with these kind of guys because that's just a normal. I mean, with as, as Real Madrid fans, we haven't seen that in a while, right? We're used to superstars coming into the team. Um, even we have players like Vallejo who come in super, super mature. And even Asensio was was higher up the developmental plane when he came to Real Madrid. Bayo yeah. is more of like what, what players normally develop like. And it's just something we have to adjust to because we see now that he he really does have an amazing upside. I mean, his pace... He has a, he's really underrated when dribbling at players. I mean, he has really good close control when running at pace. And it's we 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 give him the time and we're patient. We will see another like Marcelo type player on the flag. I mean, Marcelo came on, he played a brilliant game. I mean, game. he was incredible. That's, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's potentially the kind of thing we can get from Teo three to four seasons from now. And I just 
just urge yeah. every fan to stay patient because these kinds of like bright spots we've seen from Theo are going to become a regular thing soon enough. Yeah, and on top of it, right, I think that maybe, obviously he won't have that, probably won't have that spark of attacking genius that Marcelo, when when he's having his best yeah. day like yesterday, can bring yeah. to the pitch as a, basically, I mean, I think you could make the argument that Marcelo is one of the top two or three dribblers on the team. Like, <laughs> some of the moves that, like, the ways yeah, he gets yeah. around people are just flabbergasting and the kind of things that I'm not even sure Cristiano Ronaldo could do like it's basically him and Isco are my two choices for you know best dribblers and maybe Kovacic but like he so he's crazy good in that yeah, um, yeah. but I think that what Teo could bring in the future and what I'm hoping for is uh, a player like a lot like Marcelo but maybe with le- slightly less of that uh, attacking genius but a lot a lot more stability and defense just because of his mm-hmm. The body type, um, I think he does have a little bit more speed. I mean, and if he lays I think Theo has a better work rate. Yeah. Yeah, That's what I'm saying. So I think that actually what Madrid could be looking at is a a left back who maybe doesn't give quite the same absolute brilliance as Marcelo. I mean, Madrid, if you look at our, the, the Real Madrid left back progression, it's basically been Roberto Carlos, Marcelo, and now we have Teo. And that is incredible to think that Madrid has for the last almost 30 years had a consistently brilliant left back. And I think that if Teo develops the way we expect him to, and we've been seeing from this elite prospect into an absolutely elite left back, Madrid will have had one of the left back, best left backs in the world for the last 30 years. Mm-hmm. It's crazy. I, that's It's crucial because today's game, the fullback is extremely important. I mean, it doesn't matter what system you go to. You go to Mourinho, you go to Guardiola, you go to Zidane. The fullback is arguably the most important offensive position on the pitch because it stretches the field and it allows players to, to, to come narrow and overload the center of the pitch. And it's and, and, and they defend as well, right? Or they're supposed to. So, I mean, having I, th- I think this is one of the better examples of Florentino and the, and the management team planning for the future because it's absolutely crucial to have, you know, a left back of that quality. And, you know, Ashraf is... He's even rawer than Theo is, and I think he we need to give him even more time. Um, but if Ashraf pans out the way that we expect him to, we have a really good good future at, at the fullback position. Yeah, which is crucially important moving forward. Um, so let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about that second half. I think um, that so I think it's it's a fa- it was actually a really fascinating half of football in my opinion because what we saw was you know each team grab a goal. And uh, but with Madrid dominating play, and I think that most importantly, like uh, there was this kind of laying off after Madrid were up two nothing that led to uh, there was sustained periods of dominance, right? And, and Madrid did look, I thought, really good. They they had the ball in the net quite a few times with a lot of calls coming coming to to knock the goals out, and then uh, Hitafe breaks with one brilliant pass, uh, and then Nacho running behind. Uh, uh, and and then sticks his leg in and and I think that you know on replay it did seem like he got the ball it should probably not have been a penalty but I think it's a fair and understandable call what I don't think is understandable is in that situation oh and tell me if you disagree in that situation if there is a foul that could lead to a penalty you really need to give a card like I I actually like this is clear he's right running at goal like you can make the argument it's a straight red card but at least he yeah. should have had a yellow and that would have actually remove Nacho from this match yeah my understanding is when it's a clear-cut opportunity and it's the last man and you make a last-ditch 
sliding tackle like that and the referee judges that you don't get the ball, that's a straight red card. And the fact that it isn't given, I mean, it's just, we all know how annoying La Liga referees are. I mean, like, it's, it, it tells me that he wasn't that. Yeah. You can see on the replay, Nacho clearly got the ball. It's, I, you have to be consistent with your decisions. I mean, more than anything, even if you're going to be wrong, like, the, the reason there's so much debate over refereeing decisions and fans are always so confused is because there's no consistency in the way the rules are applied. It, right. If it's consistent, then at least some of these wrong calls could be bearable because then you feel it's done with some kind of integrity. Otherwise, it just feels it's like all over the place. And with La Liga refereeing, we know it's all over the place. And it's it's just like, I, I don't know what to say. Like, it was just frustrating, but because Hitafe were 10 men down and, you know, we usually always find a way to concede no matter what I... I was able to brush it off. I just accepted yeah. it. I was confident we were going to score another one. But it in a more important match, we've seen this kind of thing happen in more important matches, and it's just, when, when is it going to be solved? I mean, I, I don't know if it ever will be. No, I don't either. I mean, there were a couple other... I mean, hopefully that VAR begins to, to, to be useful, but, like, I don't even know if and this is a situation where VAR would make sense. Like, I... I I mean, there were a couple offside, questionably offside moments and, like, all that stuff. But, like, yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I mean, ultimately, players, fans, all we want, it's not so much that we want uh, uh, this the right call 99 or 100% of the time. What we really want is the same call 100% of the time. So, we like, we if you're going to yeah. get it wrong, get it wrong consistently. Don't get it wrong randomly. <laughs> And out of nowhere, <laughs> because then it seems like, well, I mean, look at the way that, like, Barcelona hadn't had a penalty called against them for, like, two mm-hmm. years. And that that's ridiculous. It it under it belies, like, a feeling that referees are calling the match differently for Barcelona. And that's – it's ridiculous. Mm. And then when they finally do get a, a penalty against them, apparently the decision wasn't a correct one. I mean, it's just – it's fucked up right. in all sorts of ways. It's just <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> It's true. It was. I watched that game. I was like, that is not a penalty, but whatever. I mean, like, uh, anyway, it, it was. It's a. It's a fascinating thing with the with the league of referees, and part of the reason is we've seen corruption in in these sports where this kind of thing is is exactly what happened. So, um, all right, that's basically it. I don't have that much more to say. I thought Ronaldo looked really good. The second half, everyone looked. I mean. Madrid dominated. It would have been nice to see them be a little bit more collected when responding to Hitafe's counterattacks, which actually did look pretty threatening when they would get the ball through. But ultimately, it was 11-man Madrid with the BBC on form running at a Hitafe side. Madrid had the ball in the net a number of times. Like, this could have been much worse for Hitafe. Uh, so I, I don't have that much more to say about it. I agree. I think we can move on to the questions, right. some of the questions that we have. Yeah, and we, um, if, if we haven't addressed your point, we will do that now. Um, we're trying to make sure that we don't talk too much about um, the questions that you ask before we read them so that you understand that we're, we're talking about them. So, Shea Kateri uh, asks us about superstitions. <laughs> uh, he says, I'm, I'm neither religious nor superstitious. I, I'm, in fact, very anti-superstitions. During Madrid games, however, I become super superstitious. <laughs> I constantly touch wood. I keep certain rituals, etc. My friend is a Barcelona fan, and he doesn't use internet during Barca games because he's convinced if he uses the internet, they will lose. Are we weirdos, or is it normal? Do you guys have the same problem? I mean, I I understand this. I mean, 
my my mom whenever like we watch tennis matches we're all we're all big federer fans like she won't watch the match because she's convinced that whenever she comes into the room and, and she she looks at the tv federer like loses a point or something so you know it's it's weird to me as i like, kind of defeats the purpose of being a fan right because like don't you want to watch the game but like no this is definitely extremely common personally i don't have any superstitions at all i def I, I generally find them to be extremely foolish and like I, I make fun of it actually because on Twitter I have as I'm sure all of you know I have a reputation for jinxing things so I, I have fun with that but it, at the end of the day I don't really believe in any superstitions or I don't yeah. have any kind of rituals I go through yo I um so I definitely did I I, I totally get this shit I used to have this much more I, I kind of chilled out with it though to be to be honest and maybe that's why Madrid's had such a bad season <laughs> it's like <laughs> it's I know it's my fault <laughs> but I didn't stop I mean like I stopped really focusing on some of these rituals back and, and some of these superstitions back like a, a few years ago so it's not Madrid's also had a couple of very good seasons since that happened so it's all random I mean I I think that anyone should do whatever they need to do to feel less stressed out or whatever about games because uh-huh, I yeah. totally understand feeling really worried and nervous and feeling like you want to do something to to feel like you have some sort of control which I think this is what this is about right feeling like yep, yep. <laughs> there is total randomness and that you can't affect anything and that this has nothing you know to do with you is is hard and annoying and sort of not the point like i like to yell at the tv even though i know that that has no effect and (laughs) get frustrated at the referees even though they can't hear you right exactly (laughs) a rage tweet at players no don't do that that that's stupid that's that's annoying because they're actual human beings so um but yeah so that's cool i don't think you're weird definitely not weird people have all their like uh individual like ritualistic things that they do with all sports so i don't think it's weird um so just do whatever I think our team is pretty superstitious as well, if I'm not wrong. Like, I think Ronaldo does that thing where he jumps every time he comes out of the stadium. I know, I remember watching some, like, Madrid release, like, that mini documentary series about the team. Like, someone needed, like, a specific type of, like, tape around their ankles before they played. So, I mean, it's not just fans, it's footballers Oh, as well. hell yeah. I mean, athletes are incredibly superstitious. If you actually, yeah. like, and even more so in games that, uh, are hugely dependent on luck. I mean, this one is so. It's it's. I, I know footballers are, but more than anyone, there the it's baseball players are the most superstitious in the world because their game is like hugely luck dependent, uh, and that's fair. So, all right, next question. Jihan Watson asks us, "What's the ceiling on Marcos Llorente's offensive upside? Could he end up as a regista, or perhaps even play slightly higher up the pitch in more of a center midfield role?" So, I think before we even get into this. Um, can you explain the difference between a center mid and a regista? Because in my view, these actually are, are overlapping Venn diagrams. Yeah, so the thing with like tactical terms about positions is like it gets extremely semantic-y. Like, so to, to put it simply, so regista is like an expansion on the deep-lying playmaker. So when, when you talk about a deep-lying playmaker, you're talking about a player like Kroos or Busquets who basically dictates the tempo of the team. They start things in possession. They receive deep between the center backs. So that very classic type role. And technically, even though Regista and the d- deep-lying playmaker is used interchangeably, technically a Regista is more of an aggressive version. So more like think Pirlo at Juventus, who, who didn't the- really have 
traditional example of a regista. Yeah, I mean, he's basic. I mean, registas aren't that um, common. I mean, Jorginho is the other one. So they have less defensive duties. They're more aggressive. So they'll push higher up the pitch and dictate things all the way up from defensive third to the final third. And they generally have like box to box midfielders around them protecting them because they'll move higher up the pitch. And uh, just to see him is like, uh, I'm, I'm when when I when when Gian says more traditional CM role higher up the pitch, I'm assuming he means an interior. So like that's more like an Iniesta or or Isco under Ancelotti type role or Modric or Kolacic. And I don't know if I see Llorente being able to play an interior role because it's just not his game, right? Like he it, dribbling isn't his his greatest quality i mean because to play as an interior you're more of an offensive player right like you have influence in the final third as much as the middle third you know you need creativity you need dribbling you know you, you maybe you need to have a decent shot on you and Llorente, like i said before is very much a traditional single pivot defensive midfield i wouldn't even say his regista but i think he could be a good deep lying playmaker. Yeah, he, I think maybe he could. I mean, he's still very young, so he could evolve into a regista, maybe. But I mean, I think that that kind of undersells one of the big values that he brings, which is his very, I think, really mature and really evolved defensive abilities. Right? He's yeah. he's actually quite good at reading passing lanes and actually is playing as a as a defender. So like uh, to say that he should turn into a center midfielder or, or regista is. It's underselling the fact that he actually has the potential to be a very, very competent and strong actual defensive midfielder, where like where where you don't you actually want to rely on him to shut down counterattacks and whatnot. Whereas someone playing higher up the pitch, you can't really make use of that ability as much. So I would I would kind of like him to maybe not even try to evolve into that type yeah. of player. Madrid has a lot of those players. They they actually don't have as many players who are really good at at this kind of deep defensive midfield role like Casemiro is good he's more of a physical defender Llorente is more of a you know is quite an intelligent defender and very good at passing lanes and and reading players off the ball so and the thing with Casemiro is he he will play with those defensive roles but in pos- he doesn't play the blind play like so even he doesn't give us the complete like positional stability you want like he it's, it's almost like he plays like a weird regista role except he's not a regista because he's moving higher up the pitch like it's it's really really weird but marcos llorente gives us essentially what what sim what was similar that chabi alonso gave us where he can, can start things from the back he can dictate the tempo i don't think his passing is quite as good as alonso's or, or i don't know if his passing ceiling is as high as Alonso because Alonso is a superb passer all over the place but he'll start things from the back and he will stay in a defensive midfield position and that would allow the interiors around him to really push up so like if Isco was playing next to him technically Isco shouldn't have to come deep because Llorente will stay there and and dictate things and that's really unique because we don't have other than Kroos who is really not optimal in that defensive midfield position anyway. We don't really have any other player in that midfield that that plays that that traditional defensive midfielder slash deep line playmaker role. Uh, Next question, just really quickly, um, you should answer this one. Where can Farzad Ajuri get his hands on the raw, I think like it's Opta data or... Uh, MATLAB, I don't know. So Opta data is my understanding is what you're asking for. Where can you get it? My Because I've tried to do this before myself, and I've always run into paywalls. So is there a way to get free data? So the only way that I am aware, and I actually just recently did this, is to 
Um, talk to Dave Willoughby, I think is his name, from Stratabet on Twitter. You, you, you send him a direct message and ask if you want access to the data. And I think... I think you have to like write for some kind of publication or be like some kind of like amateur data analyst to to get access to the data. But essentially what he'll do is he'll send you the data for free for like five, a maximum of five leagues. And there are like stipulations that you have to adhere to. So you have to publish semi-regularly and you have to give Stratabet credit on everything that you do. And the, the basically the deal is is you get access to free raw data. I mean, this is really, really raw event data that that you wouldn't be able to get your hands on normally. And in return, you basically spread the Stratabet name because they're also a betting company and they they want like their brand to spread. So you spread their spread their brand like by publishing like their stats in your work. So it's like a partnership that works that way. And to my knowledge, Stratabet is the only advanced stats company that does this sort of thing because for opta you have to pay a shitload of money so if if you're interested in that talk to dave willoughby see if you can get free data from him but also know that you can't just sit around with the data you have to produce something because they want this partnership to be beneficial to them yeah and so it it, unfortunately yeah this is one of the things about the analytics revolution in, in in this sport which is that unlike in some previous eras where there was quite a bit of like open internet style cooperation especially in the world of advanced baseball analytics at the beginning of that period we really have in this sport we've moved more towards a pay-to-play analytics game mm-hmm. so uh people very smart people have data they have access to it and they're but they get it through their companies so we don't mm-hmm. have as many amateur data analysts like writing whole blogs about like you know, taking like raw data and turning it into really interesting things so like that unfortunately is what's going on, and that it bums me out a little bit because I really do think we'd be even farther along in analytics. Yeah, yeah, definitely. If we had more, like, if we had progressed more, like baseball, where they, they like literally the guy who made the metric OPS, which is one of the more common metrics we use now, it was like a fucking nineteen-year-old. <laughs> it's like that. <laughs> it's like he was working in his parents' basement, and like that. That's not like. I'm not. I don't even think he made any money from it. It's just that was the whole idea as to like, can we create metrics that are useful? And I saw um and and just on a tangent because Keon is in here to rein me in, but I <laughs> I saw this really cool bit of data that was like averaging uh, expected goals versus like the percentage of expected goals that became actual goals let in by certain keepers and like all this oh, stuff. Yeah, and yeah. they, 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 you know, normalize it to league average and then put it on a, a scale where you're like, you know, um, percentages above league average, which is amazing. And like, that's the kind of metric that we really should, because that's an unbelievably useful metric when you're talking about how good players are. Oh yeah, the league average thing. So I mean, so the because of, essentially because of Stratabet, the amateur analysts like um, blogosphere is is sort of exploding at the moment. I mean, I who knows how long Stratabet will do this because if their name becomes big enough, they can decide, hey, we can charge for our data right. now. So I mean, get get this stuff while you can, essentially. And um, my understanding is that they're very open about this right now. They want everyone to have their data and they want everyone to be using it. And like like Gabe just mentioned, there's tons of people out there 
amateur analysts who aren't really getting paid and they're producing some really, really cool stuff. And it's, it's really helping my understanding of the game. It's helping everyone else's understanding of the game. So if you can be a part of this, that would, I mean, it, it's a cool opportunity. Yeah. Um, all right. So, uh, Jose Villacris has asked us, um, how freaking exciting is it uh, to finally have the BBC up and running? Uh, I swear I miss these guys. Cristiano the Unicorn always delivering, and Bale has me excited, as excited as when he was signed. Could he potentially stay healthy until the end of the season? Um, that's me knocking on wood, Shay, by the way. <laughs> uh, no, I mean, like, Speaking of superstitions. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah man, I'm, I'm psyched about it. They look really good, finally. I. Uh, Bale playing with Ronaldo and Benzema is, I mean, he plays really well when he, when he gets into this role uh, that he was in, in this match and in not playing as like the, the unique and on lone striker, like he was playing against Espanol. Uh, yeah, this was a really good game uh, for all of them. So I'm, I'm feeling very hopeful. Yeah. I mean, I agree with all of that. I, I mean, I don't know about Bale being healthy. I mean, that's completely unpredictable totally at this random. point. I don't think- yep. I don't think any of us know, but I'm just really happy, especially when Ronaldo's back on farm. It's yeah. almost like nothing else matters because he can just cover for everything. And it was really depressing me to see him not perform the first half of the season because I thought his all-around play was actually good for a yeah, large portion. Yeah, now, that. now that the goals are back, it's it's really great. I mean, we're going to need that if we want to make a run in the Champions League. Yeah, exactly. Um, Ross Cabrera asks us... Uh, Hey guys, I heard through some commentary the other day about a La Liga referee being arrested, um, linked to something to do with a Barcelona match. Does anyone know any truth about this? Yeah, I, I um, I actually did a little digging. I have no idea what you're talking about, my man. I'm sorry about that. I can't. Yeah, I have absolutely no idea. It might just be someone on Twitter who yeah. made something. I mean, there's so much false shit that goes on on Twitter. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, like I did a couple of Google News searches and I just didn't see anything. So it's not being reported if it is, which, which is a pretty good indication that it's probably fake. Um, Dave Davin Martinson, sorry, Davin. Um, I'd like Keon to give us some hot takes on his firstborn son's strong outing and holding our midfield. Do you think a double pivot is the best way to address our ongoing susceptibility to counterattacks without sacrificing offensive creativity? So we've discussed this a little bit, but why don't we, I mean, Om, do you want to answer the part specifically about the, how the double pivot deals with counterattacks? So, yeah, I'm not Keon, but, um, so you have well, to obviously make Keon is in here. Yeah. We're going to have to deal with us. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, I, I don't even know like if, if it's so much like the double pivot or like a three man midfield does a better job at stopping counterattacks. Like it's, it's, it's so such a theoretical discussion. It, it's more about just because one can work better than the other, depending on the context. It's more about just how you structure your midfield and how organized it is in relation to, 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 to all the other pieces of your team. So it, I mean, you can have just like one, defensive midfielder and two attacking midfielders like Pep does with De Bruyne and Silva ahead of Fernandinho and they're really good at stopping counterattacks because they press really well so it it all depends I mean it's all about your team-wide organization and team-wide structure like there's no one tactical tweak that's going to solve our issues when it comes to dealing with counterattacks it's more about team-wide fundamentals and it, it feels like this This feels like a cop-out answer, but that's really what it is. I mean, a, a double pivot is not magically going to solve our ability to handle counterattacks. Like we saw, we conceded on a counterattack, um, the the penalty where Nacho was wrongly called for a foul. It, it really is just about 
team-wide organization, team-wide compactness, whether we want to press, we have to press in an organized and compact manner. If we want to sit back, we need to do that in an organized and compact manner. It's really about just generic tactical fundamentals. Yeah, this is... The, I yes, this is that's the right way to look at this. I mean, I I really I thought he did a really good job of get playing the role that he was given today. That's that's or um, yesterday. That's what I that's what I'd say about Marcos. And, and when it comes to counterattacks, he actually um, um is. Uh, I mean, if he were in a different midfield structure where there was in fact a midfield structure and wasn't like totally random. Um, nonsense. Uh, he would actually be one of the players that I would rely on to be able to snuff out counterattacks. Like he mm-hmm. and Modric are both quite good at that. So I would have really liked to see a midfield with those two in it because I bet we would see a lot more of you know interceptions, a lot more very smart defending, which is the key to stopping a counterattack. It's less about you know bodying someone off the ball and more about knowing how to prevent the the passes that break your lines really quickly. And both of them are very good at that, specifically. Yep, I agree with that. All right, Managing Madrid listeners, this is Kiyong Sobani back to sign you off. Um, Hope you enjoyed that two-part podcast. Gabe and I will be back Wednesday night um, to recap the PSG game. And we hope that it will be a cheerful podcast, to say the least. Before I let you guys go... I'm going to give a quick shout out to all of our amazing patrons who make this show possible. But a specific shout out to these $10 plus patrons who one of the rewards is you actually get a specific shout out on the podcast. So specific shout out to Nick DeStefane, Frederick Sundros, Leon Stavronakis, Bjorn Salvador, John Fernandez, Said Mahad, Sergio Monleon, Red Bat, Anthony Vasquez, Yahya Ibrahim, Nick Robero, Eric Rogers, Sheikh Hatiri, Ian Marley, Dan Berkley, Jahan Watson, Anton Hackberg, Jimmy Obeid, Daniel Smith, Solomon Artis, Solomon Artis, excuse me, and Jeanette. Thank you. You guys are the real MVPs. We owe a lot to you. And for those of you who want access to Wednesday night's post PSG show, a dollar a month is the minimum. Um, anything more is obviously appreciated but a dollar a month is not a lot guys um, and it adds up for us it helps us invest back in the show and um, and make the show better alright guys take care and hala madrid Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate. Introducing the amazing iPhone XS you'll love on T-Mobile, the most loved in wireless. It's the perfect way to stay connected to those you heart most. Fall in love with iPhone XS on T-Mobile. And right now, trade in an eligible iPhone and you'll save $300. Visit a store or call 1-800-T-MOBILE. If you cancel service, remaining balance is due. Qualifying service and finance agreements required. $279.99 down plus 30 per month times 24. Full price $999.99. 0% APR for well-qualified buyers plus tax on full price. Allow eight weeks for rebate.